Chapter Thirteen, Part One of My Life on the Plains. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Comrades, leave me here a little while as yet tis early morn. Leave me here, and when you want me, sound upon the bugle horn. In this instance, however, the bugle whose summoning's note I was supposed to be listening for was one of peculiar structure and its tones could only be rendered effective when prompted by the will of the director at Washington. In other words, I was living in involuntary but unregretful retirement from active service. I had spent the winter of 1867-68 to 68 most agreeably with many of my comrades at Fort Leavenworth, but in the spring was forced to see them set out for their summer rendezvous for operations against the Indians, and myself compelled by superior authority, or rather by circumstances over which I had no control, to remain in the rear, a non-combatant in every sense of the word, so much so that I might have been eligible to election as an honorary member of some one of those preponderous departments referred to by General Hazen in The School and the Army as holding military rank, wearing a uniform, but living in complete official separation from the line, except that I was not divided from it in heart and sympathy. It is a happy disposition that I can content itself in all phases of fortune by the saying that, that which cannot be cured must be endured. I had frequent recourse to this and summer consoling expressions in the endeavor to reconcile myself to the separation for my command. For fear some of my readers may not comprehend my situation at the time, I will briefly remark in parentheses and by the way of note of explanation that for precisely what I have described in some of the preceding chapters, the exact details of which would be out of place here, it had apparently been deemed necessary that my connection with certain events and transactions, every one of which had been fully referred to heretofore, should be submitted to an official examination in order to determine if each and every one of my acts had been performed with due regard to the customs of war in like cases. To enter into a review of the proceedings which followed would be to introduce into these pages matters too personal a character to interest the general reader. I will suffice to say that I was placed in temporary retirement from active duty, and this result seemed satisfactory to those parties most intimately concerned in the matter. When, in the spring of 1868, the time arrived for the troops to leave their winter quarters and march westward to the plains, the command with which I had been associated during the preceding year left its station at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, and marched westward about 300 miles, there to engage in operations against the Indians. While they, under the command of General Sully, were attempting to kill Indians, I was studying the problem of how to kill time in the most agreeable manner. My campaign was a decided success. I established my base of operations in the most beautiful little town on the western shores of Lake Erie, from which I projected various hunting, fishing, and boating expeditions. With abundance of friends and companions and ample success, time passed pleasantly enough 
Yet withal there was a constant longing to be with my comrades in arms in the far west, even while aware of the fact that their campaigns were not resulting in any material advantage. I had no reason to believe that I would be permitted to rejoin them until the following winter. It was on the evening of the 24th of September, and when about to break bread at the house of a friend in the little town referred to, that I received the following telegram. Headquarters, Department of the Missouri, in the field, Fort Hayes, Kansas, September 24th, 1868. General G. A. Custer, Monroe, Michigan. Generals Sherman, Sully, and myself, and nearly all the officers of your regiment, have asked for you, and I hope the application will be successful. Can you come at once? Eleven companies of your regiment will move about the 1st of October against the hostile Indians from Medicine Lodge Creek toward the Wichita Mountains. P. H. Sheridan, Major General Commanding. The reception of this dispatch was a source of unbounded gratification to me, not only because I saw the opportunity of being actively and usefully employed open before me, but there were personal considerations inseparable from the proposed manner of my return, which in themselves were in the highest degree agreeable, so much so that I felt forbearing toward each and every one who, whether intentionally or not, had been a party to my retirement, and was almost disposed to favor them with a copy of the preceding dispatch, accompanied by an expression of my hearty thanks for the unintentional favor they had thrown my way. Knowing that the applications of General Sherman and Sheridan, and the other officers referred to, would meet with favorable reply from the authorities of Washington, I at once telegraphed General Sherman that I would start to join him by the next train, not intending to wait the official order which I knew would be issued by the War Department. The following day found me on the railway train hastening to the plains as fast as the iron horse could carry me. The expected order from Washington overtook me that day in the shape of an official telegram from the Adjutant General of the Army directing me to proceed at once and report for duty to General Sheridan. At Fort Leavenworth, I halted in my journey long enough to cause my horses to be shipped by rail to Fort Hayes. Nor must I admit to other faithful companions of my subsequent marches and campaigns, named Bucher and Meida, two splendid specimens of Scottish stagehound, who were destined to share the dangers of an Indian campaign and finally meet death in a tragic manner, the one by the hand of a savage, the other by an ill-directed bullet from a friendly carbine. Arriving at Fort Hayes on the morning of the 30th, I found General Sheridan, who had transferred his headquarters temporarily from Fort Leavenworth to that point in order to be nearer the field operations, and better able to give his personal attention to the conduct of the coming campaign. My regiment was at the time on or near the Arkansas River in the vicinity of Fort Dodge and about three easy marches from Fort Hayes. After remaining at General Sheridan's headquarters one day and receiving his instructions, I set out with a small escort across the country to Fort Dodge to resume command of my regiment. Arriving at Fort Dodge without incident, I found General Sully, who was at that time in command of the district in which my regiment was serving. 
With the exception of a few detachments, the main body of the regiment was encamped on Bluff Creek, a small tributary of the Arkansas, the camp being some thirty miles southeast of Fort Dodge. Taking with me the detachment at the fort, I proceeded to the main camp, arriving there in the afternoon. I had scarcely assumed my command when a band of Indians dashed close up to our camp and fired upon us. This was getting into active service quite rapidly. I was in the act of taking my seat for dinner, my right having given me a splendid relish for the repast, and when the shouts and firings of the savages informed me that more serious duties were at hand. Every man flew to arms and almost without command rushed to oppose the enemy. Officers and men provided themselves with rifles or carbines and soon began delivering a deliberate but ineffective fire against the Indians. The latter, as usual, was merely practicing their ordinary ruse de guerre, which was to display a very small venturesome force, in the expectation that tempting pursuit by an equal or slightly superior force, and, after having led the pursuing force well away from the main body, to surround and destroy it by the aid of overwhelming numbers previously concealed in a ravine or ambush until the proper moment. On this occasion, the stratagem did not succeed. The Indians, being mounted on their fleetest ponies, would charge in single file past our camp, often riding within easy carbine range of our men, displaying great boldness and unsurpassable horsemanship. The soldiers, unaccustomed to firing at such rapidly moving objects, were rarely able to inflict serious damage upon their enemies. Occasionally a pony would be struck and brought to the ground, but the rider always succeeded in being carried away upon the pony of a comrade. It was interesting to witness their marvelous abilities as horsemen. At the same time, one could not but admire the courage they displayed. The ground was level, open, and unobstructive. The troops were formed in an irregular line of skirmishes, dismounted, the line extending a distance of perhaps two hundred yards. The Indians had a rendezvous behind a hillock on the right side, which prevented them from being seen or disturbed by the soldiers. Starting out singly or by twos and threes, the warriors would suddenly leave the cover of the hillock and with war-whoops and taunts dash over the plain in a line parallel to that occupied by the soldiers, and within easy carbine range of the latter. The pony seemed possessed of this design, and wished his dusky rider as he seemed to fly unguided by the bridle rein or spur. The warrior would fire a load and fire again as often as he is able to do, while dashing along through the shower of leaden bullets fired above, beneath, in front, and behind him by the excited troopers, until finally, when the aim of the latter improved and the leaden messengers whistled uncomfortably close, the warrior would be seen to cast himself over the opposite side of his pony until his foot on the back and his face over the neck of the pony were all that could be seen, the rest of his person being completely covered by the body of the pony. This maneuver would frequently deceive the recruits among the soldiers, having fired probably about the time the warrior was seen to disappear. The recruit would shout exultingly, a call that the attention of his comrades that he had the lucky shot. The old soldiers, however, were not so easily deceived. 
and often afterwards would remind their less experienced companion of the terrible fatality of his shots after finding that their plan to induce a small party to pursue them did not succeed the indians withdrew their forces and concealment being no longer necessary we were enabled to see their full numbers as that portion of them which had hitherto remained hidden behind a bluff rode boldly out into the open plain being beyond rifle range they contented themselves with taunts and gestures of defiance then rode away from the officers of the camp i learned that the performance of the indians which had occupied our attention on this afternoon was of almost daily occurrence and that the savages from having been allowed to continue in their course unmolested had almost reduced the camp to a state of siege so true had this become that at no hour of the day was it safe for individuals to pass beyond the chain of sentinels which enveloped the immediate limits of the camp before it became known that the indians were so watchful and daring many narrow escapes were made and many laughable although serious incidents occurred laughable however only to those who were not the parties most interested two of these serio-comic affairs now recur to me there was a beautiful clear stream of water named bluff creek running through camp which supplied bathing facilities to the officers and men a privilege which few allowed to pass unimproved whether to avoid the publicity attending localities near camp or to seek a point in the bed of the stream where the water was fresh and undisturbed or from a motive different from either of the two two of our young officers mounted their horses one day without saddles and rode down the valley of the stream perhaps a mile or more in search of a bathing place discovering one to their taste they dismounted secured their horses and after disposing of their apparel on the greensward covering the banks were soon floating and floundering in the water like a pair of young porpoises how long they had been enjoying this healthful recreation or how much longer they might have remained is not necessarily the story one of them happening to glance toward the horses observed the latter in a state of great trepidation hastening from the water to the bank he discovered the cause of the strange conduct on the part of the horses which was nothing more or less than a party of about thirty indian warriors mounted and steadily making their way towards a bathing party evidently having their eyes on the latter and intent upon their capture here was a condition of affairs that was at least unexpected as it was unwelcome quickly calling out to his companion who was still in the water unconscious of approaching danger the one on the shore made haste to unfasten their horses and prepare for flight fortunately the indians who were now within a few hundred yards of the two officers were coming from the direct opposite camp leaving the line of retreat of the officers open no sooner did the warriors find that their approach was discovered than they put their ponies to their best speed hoping to capture the officers before the latter could have time to mount and get their horses under way the two officers in the meantime were far from idle no flesh bruises or bathing towels were required to restore a healthy circulation nor was time wasted in an idle attempt to make a toilet if they had sought their bathing ground from the motives of retirement or delicacy no such sentiments were exhibited now for catching up their wardrobe from the ground in one hand and seizing the bridle rein with the other one leap and they were on their horses backs and riding towards camp for dear life
they were not exactly in the condition of flora mcflimsy with nothing to wear but to all intents and purposes might have well have been so then followed a race which but for the risk occurred by two of the riders might well be compared to that of john gilpin both of the officers were experienced horsemen but what experienced horseman would willingly care to be thrust upon the bare back of a flying steed minus all apparel neither boots breeches nor saddle not even the spurs and shirt collar which are said to constitute the full uniform of a georgian colonel and when so disposed of to have three or four score of hideously painted and feathered savages well mounted and near at hand straining every nerve and urging their fleet-footed war ponies to their highest speed in order that the scalps of the experienced horsemen might be added to the other human trophies which graced their lodges truly this was one of the occasions when the personal appearance is nothing and a man's a man for that so at least through our amateur mazapas as they came dashing toward camp ever and anon casting anxious glances over their shoulders at the pursuers who despite every exertion of the former were surely overhauling their pale-faced brothers to the pursued the camp seemed a long way in the distance while the shouts of the warriors each time seeming nearer than before warned them to urge their steeds to their fastest pace in a few moments the occupants of camp discovered the approach of this strangely appearing party it was an easy matter to recognize the warriors but who could name the two who rode at the front the pursuing warriors seeing that they were not likely to overtake and capture the two knights of the bath slackened their pace and set a volley of arrows after them a few moments later and the two officers were safe inside the lines where they lost no time in making their way to their tents to attend to certain matters relating to their toilet which the sudden appearance of their dusky visitors had prevented. It was a long time before they ceased to hear allusions made by their comrades to the cut and style of their riding suit. The other affair to which I have alluded occurred about the same time, but in different direction from camp. One of the officers who was commanding a troop concluded one day that it would be safe to grant permission to a part of his command to leave camp for the purpose of hunting buffalo, and obtaining fresh meat for the men the hunting party being strong enough to protect itself against almost any ordinary war party of indians that might present itself left camp at an early hour in the morning and set out in the direction which the buffalo were reported to be the forenoon passed away noon came and still no signs of the return of the hunters the small hours of the afternoon began to come and go and still no tidings from the hunters who were expected to return to camp after an absence of two or three hours the officer to whose troop they belonged and who was of exceedingly nervous temperament began to regret having accorded them permission to leave camp knowing that indians had been seen in the vicinity the hunting party had gone by a route across the open country which carried them up a long but very gradual ascent of perhaps two miles beyond which on the level plain the buffalo were supposed to be herding in large numbers anxious to learn something concerning the whereabouts of his men and believing he could obtain a view of the country beyond which might prove satisfactory the officer whose suspense was now constantly increasing determined to mount his horse and ride to the summit of the ridge 
beyond which his men had disappeared in the morning. Taking no escort with him, he leisurely rode off, guided by the trail made by the hunters. The distance to the crest proved much farther than it seemed from the eye before starting. The ride of over two miles had to be made before the highest point was reached, but once there the officer felt well repaid for his exertion, for in the dim deceptions of a beautiful mirage he saw what to him was his hunting party leisurely returning toward camp thinking they were still a long distance from him and would not reach him for a considerable time he did what every prudent cavalry man would have done under similar circumstances dismounted and allowed his horse an opportunity to rest at the same time he began studying the extended scenery from which his exalted position lay spread in all directions beneath him the camp seemed nestling among the banks of the creek at the base of the ridge appeared as pleasant relief to the monotony of the view which otherwise was undisturbed having scanned the horizon in all directions he turned to watch the approach of his men when behold instead of his own trusty troopers returning laden with fruits of chase the mirage had disappeared and he saw a dozen well-mounted warriors riding directly towards him at full speed they were still far enough away to enable him to mount his horse, and half more than an even chance to outstrip them in the race to camp. But no time was to be thrown away. The beauties of natural scenery had, for the last time at least, lost their attraction. Camp never seemed so inviting to him. Heading his horse towards the camp, and gathering the reins in one hand and holding his revolver in the other, the officer set out to make his escape judgment had to be employed in riding this race for the distance being fully two miles before a place of safety could be reached his horse not being high-bred and accustomed to going such a distance at full speed might if forced too rapidly at first fail before reaching camp acting upon this idea tight rein was held as much as speed kept in reserve as safely would permit this enabled the indians to gain on the officer but at no time did he feel that he could not elude his pursuers. His principal anxiety was confined to the character of the ground, care being taken to avoid the rough and broken places. A single misstep or stumble on the part of his horse, and his pursuers would be upon him before he could rise. The sensations he experienced during that flying ride could not have been inviolable. Soon the men in the camp discerned his situation, and seized their carbines, hastening out to his assistance. The Indians were soon driven away, and the officer again found himself among his friends. The hunters also made their appearance shortly after, while supplied with game. They had not found the buffalo as near the camp as they expected, and after finding them they were carried by a long pursuit in a different direction from that taken by them in the morning hence their delay in returning to camp these and similar occurrences added to the attack made by the indians on the camp the afternoon i joined proved that unless we were to consider ourselves as actually besieged and were willing to accept the situation some decisive course must be adopted to punish the indians for their temerity no offensive measures had been attempted since the infantry and cavalry forces of general sully had marched up the hill and then like the forces of the king of france had marched down again the effect of 
This movement, in which the Indians gained a decided advantage, was to encourage them in their attempts to annoy and disturb the troops, not only by prowling about camp in considerable numbers and rendering it unsafe, as has been seen, to venture beyond the chain of sentinels, but by waylaying and intercepting all parties passing between camp and the base of supplies at Fort Dodge. Knowing from my recent interview with General Sheridan that the activity was to characterize the future operations of our troops, particularly those of the cavalry, and that the sooner a little activity was exhibited on our part, the sooner perhaps we might be freed from the aggression of the Indians. I returned from the afternoon skirmish to my tent and decided to begin offensive movements that same night, as soon as darkness should conceal the march of the troops. It was reasonable to infer that the war parties, which had become so troublesome in the vicinity of camp and made their appearance almost daily, had a hiding place or a rendezvous on some of the many small streams which flowed within a distance of twenty miles of the point occupied by the troops and it was barely possible that if a simultaneous movement was made by several well-conducted parties with a view of the scouting up and down the various streams referred to the hiding place of the indians might be discovered and their forays in the future broken up it was deemed almost prudent and to promise the greatest chance of successes to make these movements at night, during the hours of daylight, the Indians no doubt kept close watch over everything transpiring in the vicinity of the camp, and no scouting party could have taken its departure in daylight unobserved by the watchful eyes of the savages. Four separate detachments were at once ordered to be in readiness to move immediately after dark. Each detachment numbered about one hundred cavalry, well-mounted and well-armed. Guides who knew the country well were assigned to each, and each party was commanded and accompanied by a zealous and efficient officer. The country was divided into four sections, and to each detachment was assigned one of the sections, with orders to thoroughly scout the streams running through it. It was hoped that some one of these parties might, if in no other way, stumble upon a campfire or other indication of the rendezvous of the Indians, but subsequent experience only confirmed me in the opinion that the Indians seldom, if ever, permit hostile parties to stumble upon them, unless the stumblers are the weaker party. Before proceeding further in my narrative, I will introduce to the reader a personage who is destined to appear at different intervals and upon interesting occasions as a campaign proceeds. It is usual on the plains, and particularly during the time of active hostilities, for every detachment of troops to be accompanied by one or more professional scouts or guides. These guides are employed by the government at a rate of compensation far in excess of that paid to the soldiers, some of the most experienced receiving pay about equal to that of a subaltern in the line. They constitute a most interesting as well as useful and necessary portion of our frontier population. Who they are, whence they come, or whither they go, their names even, except such as they choose to adopt or which may be given them, are all questions which none but themselves can answer. As their usefulness to the service depends not upon the unraveling or either of these mysteries, but little thought is bestowed upon them. Do you know the country thoroughly, 
and can you speak any of the Indian languages, constitutes the only examination which civil or uncivil service reforms demands on the plains. If the evidence of these two important points is satisfactory, the applicant for the vacancy in the Corps of Scouts may consider his position as secured, and the door to congenial employment most often leading to a terrible death opens before him. They are almost invariably men of very superior judgment or common sense, with education generally better than that of the average frontiersman. Their most striking characteristics are love of adventure, a natural and cultivated knowledge of the country without recourse to maps, deep hatred of the Indian, and an intimate acquaintance with all the habits and customs of the latter, whether pertaining to peace or war, and last but most necessary to their calling, a skill in the use of firearms and the management of a horse. The possessor of these qualifications, and more than the ordinary amount of courage, may feel equal to discharge the dangerous and trying duties of a scout. In concentrating the cavalry, which had hitherto been operating in small bodies, it was found that each detachment brought with it the scouts who had been serving with them. When I joined the command, I found quite a number of these scouts attached to various portions of the cavalry, but each acting separately. For the purpose of organization, it was deemed best to unite them into a separate detachment under the command of one of their own number. Being unacquainted personally with the merits or demerits of any of them, the selection of a chief had necessarily to be made somewhat at random. There was one among their number whose appearance would have attracted the notice of any casual observer. He was a man of about forty years of age, perhaps older, over six feet in height, and possessing a well-proportioned frame. His head was covered with a luxurious crop of long, almost black hair, strongly inclined to curl, and so long as to fall carelessly over his shoulders. His face, as least so much of it as was not concealed by the long, waving brown beard and mustache, was full of intelligence and pleasant to look upon. His eye was undoubtedly handsome, black and lustrous, with an expression of kindness and mildness combined. On his head was generally to be seen, whether asleep or awake, a huge sombrero or black slouch hat. A soldier's overcoat with its large circular cape, a pair of trousers with the legs tucked in the top of his long boots, usually constituted the outside makeup of the man who I selected as chief scout. He was known by the euphemous title of California Joe. No other name seemed ever to have been given to him, and no other name ever seemed necessary. His military armament consisted of a long breech-loading Springfield musket, from which he was inseparable, and a revolver and hunting knife, both the latter being carried in his waist-belt. His mount completed his equipment for the field, being instead of a horse a finely formed mule, and in whose speed and endurance he had every confidence. Scouts usually prefer a good mule to a horse, and wisely, too, for the reason that in making their perilous journeys, either singularly or twos or threes, celerity is one principal condition to success. The object with a scout is not to overrun or overwhelm the Indians, but to avoid them both by secrecy and caution in his movements. On the plains, at most seasons of the year, the horse is incapable of performing long or rapid journeys, 
without being supplied with forage on the route this must be transported and in the case of scouts would necessarily be transported on the back of the horse thereby adding materially to the weight which must be carried the mule will perform a rapid and continuous march without forage being able to subsist on grazing to be obtained in nearly all the valleys of the plains during the greater portion of the year california joe was an inveterate smoker who was rarely seen without his stubby, dingy-looking briarwood pipe in full blast. The endurance of his smoking powers was only surpassed by his loquacity. His pipe frequently became exhausted and required refilling. But California Joe seemed never to lack for material or disposition to carry on a conversation, principally composed of personal adventures among the Indians, episodes in mining life or experience in overland journeying before the days of steam engines and palace cars rendered a trip across the plains a comparatively uneventful one it was evident from the scraps of information volunteered from time to time that there was but little of the western country from the pacific to the missouri river with which california joe was not intimately acquainted he had lived in Oregon years before, and had become acquainted from time to time with most of the officers who have served on the plains or on the Pacific coast. I once inquired of him if he had ever seen General Sheridan. What? General Sheridan? Why, bless my soul, I know Sheridan way up in Oregon more than fifteen years ago, and he was only a second lieutenant of infantry. He was quartermaster of the fort, or something of that sort, and I had the contract for furnishing wood to the post, and would you believe it? End of chapter 13, part 1